This is the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, Managing Editor of Best's Recommended Insurance Attorneys. We're very pleased to have with us today Attorney John J. Clowdy III, partner with the law firm of Pierce, Davis, and Peritano LLP in Boston, Massachusetts. John's law practice is focused on litigation and trial advocacy in defense of individuals, corporations, and governmental subdivisions at agencies in federal court and in the state courts in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. His practice areas include governmental, municipal and school liability, employment law, insurance coverage, elevator liability, product liability, and workplace (laughs) investigations. He is also a frequent lecturer for continuing legal education seminars for fellow lawyers, as well as for client seminars. And John, we're very pleased to have you with us again today. Thank you. Good morning. Today's discussion is managing the expense of ESI and claims. And for our first question, John, can you tell our audience, what is ESI? ESI uh, stands for Electronically Stored Information, and it's an umbrella term that describes many things. You know, for federal cases, ESI is actually defined under the rules, Rule 34A, which says it's writings, drawings, graphs, charts, etc., or other data or data compilations which can be stored in any medium from which information can be attained. So this definition of ESI was drafted intentionally to be broad enough to cover all current types of computer-based information, but also be flexible enough to encompass future changes and developments. So when we're talking about ESI, there's usually different types of ESI that, that are discussed as traditional ESI, which are computer files like email messages, word processing files, web pages. It's essentially the modern counterpart uh, for paper documents. And then there's the type of ESI called metadata. Metadata is best understood as data about data, or it's hidden data about a particular data set that describes things like how, when, or by whom the data was collected or created or accessed or modified and or how it was formatted. And there's this other type of of, uh, ESI called system ESI, which essentially is data that's automatically created by computer systems uh, as a temporary byproduct of digital information processing and we don't see too much discovery concerning system ESI, but it can become important as litigation proceeds. So, John, what types of cases typically involve ESI discovery, and how are they impacting claims in particular? Um, well, civil lawsuits of all kinds can involve discovery of ESI. You know, these can be cases like products liability claims, employment discrimination, breach of contract, bad faith insurance practices, and, and many others. Uh, even uh, regulatory investigators or criminal investigators routinely seek ESI when pursuing alleged wrongdoing. So from our view, the use of ESI in litigation is pervasive. It's, and this is because ESI evidence you know, can be powerful proof in the proof or defense of claims. Witnesses can deny knowledge of wrongdoing or, or lack knowledge of the sequence of key events. And then ESI documents can be used to fill gaps in evidence or, or to contradict witness testimony or even impeach the character of witnesses. So in, in our modern era with email communications and electronically created documents, there's a digital record of, of a lot of actions taken by parties and the evidence of, of the motivations behind their actions. So ESI discovery can often make or break the outcome of litigation. John, how do you plan for ESI discovery, and do courts require ESI discovery planning? 
Uh, yes, yes. Most courts now require litigants to address ESI discovery uh, issues at the beginning of litigation. You know, the federal rules specifically have several provisions, like Rule 16B, governing pretrial conferences that requires the parties to talk about electronic discovery at the initial Rule 16 scheduling conference, and also requires the court to address ESI when issuing the discovery order. Rule 26F also specifies that, that this, the parties must plan for discovery and includes topics to be addressed, such as the uh, issues relating to the preservation of discoverable information and uh, the form of production of electronically stored information, and also whether the court should enter an order allowing for you know, privilege uh, to be asserted after production. So when planning for ESI discovery, the form of production is important. Counsel should discuss and attempt to to reach an agreement on which forms of production the parties should utilize and uh, what metadata should be included. Uh, and this can be a contested issue. So as a general rule, if counsel wants to receive searchable documents and data from the other side, then you should probably agree to produce searchable documents and data to uh, in, in your production. Uh, so if your client has an information technology director or a team, you need to use those individuals to educate yourself on the ideal forms of ESI production so that uh, you know what you can produce and in response you know what you receive can be effectively managed and easily searched. So uh, when we're talking about forms of production, it's not just paper documents, but uh, typically with ESI it's image files and they can be static image files that don't have searchability functions or indexing or it's image files and load files which where have the text within the load files that can be searched and indexed. And, and load files can also include metadata. So uh, these are typically what's produced or requested, the image files and the load files, so that they can be searched and indexed. Another significant thing to, to consider in the discovery plan is any limits to the uh, presumed discovery uh, limits under the federal rules or local rules. So when discussing with opposing counsel, uh, you know, you can agree to, to serve more than 25 interrogatories, for example, or uh, if there's a presumptive limit, like in Massachusetts, where the local rules limit parties to two sets of document requests, uh, these should be adhered to if you're seeking to limit the uh, amount of ESI discovery and help reduce costs. So then should you agree to an ESI protocol with opposing counsel, and should you have a written clawback agreement or... or agreement or stipulated protective order? Uh, yeah, so in your discovery plan, it should include how the parties would deal with privileged documents, and, and this would be uh, impacted by any clawback agreement or protective order in place. Privileges with ESI can be tricky, uh, especially when documents are produced in native format, uh, which can be very difficult to redact or mark or label. Um, so. To alleviate privilege issues, some attorneys enter into these clawback agreements, which provide for the return of privilege information that might slip through uh, the, the document review process. Um, and ordinarily, these agreements provide that if there's an inadvertently produced privileged data, it's supposed to be returned upon notification to the receiving party and expressly will not uh, be considered a waiver of the attorney-client uh, client privilege. Uh, and the rules of federal evidence, Rule 502, actually provides uh, for such uh, clawback agreements. 
Um, the ESI protocol piece is part of the discovery plan. Council may consider, you know, developing their own ESI protocol, which specifies precise formats for production and deduplication, et cetera. But I advise caution when doing so. Uh, you want to avoid agreeing to production formats, which your client or the law firm doesn't have the capability to produce. And uh, otherwise, you might be obliged to retain a vendor for production when you intended to do uh, the ESI production with internal resources. Uh, you know, alternatively, if there's going to be an ESI protocol, I would suggest insisting that it only applies to production being made through an ESI vendor so that uh, the ESI you're producing using your clients or your law firm's internal resources doesn't have to be uh, within those strict uh, format agreed upon in the protocol. John, what are the duties for identification and preservation of client ESI? Uh, so, the, obviously, you have to preserve uh, ESI that may be relevant in the case. The rules, Rule 26F and uh, Rule 16B in federal uh, rules explicitly reference preservation as a subject to be considered at the early stages of the litigation. Um, given the uh, potential volume, variety, and location, of ESI, uh, preservation is important to deal with early in the litigation, uh, and preservation might actually impact the, the client's daily operations if they have to set aside large volumes of data for a litigation hold. So the things to be considered when talking about preservation are the time period of the pre preservation and the scope of the pre preservation. Uh, the time period is usually fairly obvious, straightforward as to, you know, things should be preserved when uh, the parties are aware of the litigation and or the, the claims arising in the case. The scope of preservation is a little more amorphous. Uh, counsel needs to identify key personnel who, uh, from whom the ESI data will be relevant and put them on notice that they have a duty preserved. And we suggest doing so in writing at the initiation of litigation and specify in broad terms, you know, the whole scope of ESI that they should, the client should preserve. Uh, this becomes problematic when there's ESI that might be of marginal relevance, like uh, dynamic ESI, such as an interactive website. Do we have to preserve all that content? Or ESI in possession of a, a third party, such as a social media provider. Um, so you, you want to specify these in your initial plan to, to limit the scope of preservation uh, to be consistent with you know, the federal rules to have efficient discovery in a case. Uh, one issue that does arise is the employee use of personal devices for business purposes, the old bring-your-own-device or BYOD uh, norm that's in place now. Case law is really not well-developed on this topic. Uh, you know, courts have discussed discovery disputes uh, surrounding personal devices usually focus on two issues. Is, is it the employer who is in possession or custody or control of this personal mobile device? And... Uh, should the custodian's expectation of privacy in the ESI be considered? Um, you know, you can imagine if someone's using their phone for both business and personal purposes, they don't want that to be subject to discovery in the case. Uh, you know, most courts looking at these issues kind of just look at whether there's relevant documents at stake. And if there's relevant documents on the personal devices, it's usually considered fair game for discovery. You know, our firm, by way of example, has been obliged to retain an ESI vendor to meet with individual client employees and then grab their phones and download text message data 
from their personal cell phones uh, for use in preservation and searching and production in a case. John, what infrastructure does your client and your law firm have for ESI discovery? So infrastructure is important uh, when planning for ESI. Uh, there's usually three components, people, platform, and process. For people, you know, your law firm uh, needs to have uh, sophistication, and the client should also have information technology personnel to assist in the compilation and identification of uh, relevant ESI data. Uh, so your client should provide contact people who can tell you both who are the relevant custodians of the data and uh, the IT people who can assist in compiling that data. You know, for the platform at issue, a sophisticated client uh, such as a Fortune 500 company likely has an IT platform that is going to allow outside counsel to access, search, and segregate ESI data. Smaller businesses or institutional clients aren't likely to have such resources. So your law firm is going to need to have the capability to load the ESI data onto a computer system to conduct a search and a privilege screening. If you don't have that capability as a law firm, that's where third-party vendors come in. They can be retained to, to grab the client data and load it into a review platform. And there's, you know, there's products such as Relativity or Clearwell, which are uh, these ESI review platforms that are commonly used. And uh, once that's done, then the process of ESI discovery takes place as part of the infrastructure, and that's the preservation, collection, search, review, and production. So these all have to work together to efficiently uh, comply with our discovery obligations. Should you handle ESI discovery in-house or retain an ESI vendor to assist with it? Yeah, like we just discussed, I mean, this is part of the infrastructure issue. If the people, platform, and process are available, uh, that's going to determine the necessity for retaining an ESI vendor. Uh, it also depends on what opposing counsel will agree to. If they agree to a simple production of simple image files without load files, or if the case is such that it just involves a small number of ESI custodians or a short time frame, then this can probably be handled in-house and save on expenses. Uh, if the client or law firm has the infrastructure in place, that can also determine whether there's a need for an outside vendor. But if the ESI data volume is large and the infrastructure is not already in place, then uh, retaining this third-party vendor to assist in responding to ESI discovery will be well worth the investment. So how much do ESI vendors typically charge, and what methods do they use for charging for their services? So usually there's four major tasks that the ESI discovery involves, collection, processing, review, and production. And the law firm's review for the privilege and relevance of the ESI data is often the bulk of the ESI discovery costs, and that's not going to be affected by the vendor retained. So the ESI vendor's expenses usually arises from the tasks of collection, processing, and production. Most ESI vendors use a traditional billing model, uh, and that's the dominant billing system, and it consists primarily of line item pricing for each activity provided for the collection, the processing, the coding, the hosting, the review, and the production. So vendors will charge an ingestion fee for uh, the discoverable content, a processing fee for the operations performed on the data, such as character recognition and deduplication and filtering, uh, as well as hosting fees for holding the data and storing it. Um, sometimes ESI vendors will use alternative billing, such as fixed fees per matter or per 
custodian. Um, such fixed fees arrangements, you know, we see are, are rare. Uh, even though they provide predictable expenses, they're not typical because they can result in overpayment by the client in comparison to just using the traditional billing model. So, you know, in our experience, ESI vendors using the, the traditional model uh, usually gauge their billing rates based on the size of the data set, um, the number of gigabytes. Um, so certainly they'll have hourly rates for things like consulting fees, and there may be a flat management fees. The bulk of the billing usually depends on the gigabyte size of the data being collected and processed. And these rates can obviously vary by ESI vendors. Uh, in our experience in the Northeast here, uh, hourly rates for consulting services are going to be like $200 an hour, while the rates for processing uh, the gigabytes are usually a one-time charge for $25 to $30 per gigabyte. Then there's a monthly hosting fee, uh, which is in the range of another $25 per gigabyte for so long as the project is open and the data set is being hosted. And then when there's a production set being created, there's, that can be charged by a, a flat overall fee uh, or a per-page fee or a combination of both. And the per-page fee uh, is like two cents a page, usually depending on the page of the image generated in the production set. And there's also a number of other fees, like user access fees to review the, the, uh, the documents on the Clearwell or Relativity uh, database, fees for storing devices uh, used for the production set. But the big-ticket items are the processing fees and the hosting fees if the project is long-term. So how can you limit the expense associated with ESI discovery, and what are the important parameters for narrowing the scope of this discovery? Yeah, so as you can imagine, ESI vendor bills can accumulate rapidly based on you know, the line items I just discussed. And I can give you an example in, a, in an employment retaliation case in my firm uh, recently defended uh, we are responding to a lawsuit alleging retaliation over the course of two years of an employee's employment. And we negotiated the scope of the ESI search to, to include 11 key employees who were the custodians of the email accounts. And we limited the time span to uh, three years and then did like 65 search terms. But the amount collected for these 11 custodians ended up being 186 gigabytes of data which grew to 230 gigabytes of data when the images were included uh, from these 11 employees. So once we got through all the vendor's work with her collecting, processing, hosting, and generating production set, it came to about $55,000 in fees for this ESI vendor. And that didn't even include our law firm's work for uh, review and privilege screening. So uh, to narrow... Uh, the, the, these expenses or the scope of review, um, uh, you should uh, look to conduct a search for the fewest email accounts and or custodians and the shortest date ranges. Um, counsel, you, you know, you can get a cost estimate from the ESI vendor in advance of the work and then consult with your client about likely expenses. If you're operating on a budget, you should put the ESI vendor on notice of the budget uh, with instructions not to exceed the budget amount without approval. You can emphasize your client when collecting the data to get a firm data set. You want to avoid a later need to conduct a secondary collection effort. We had a client who, when we instructed them to collect the data set, they didn't include an accurate ending date range, and so a second search had to be done uh, to expand the time limit. 
If you want to limit hosting fees, uh, have the ESI vendor conduct a pre-search using agreed-upon search terms, and then only load the search results onto the um, the data review software system like Relativity or Clearwell, not the entire data set collected. And this will greatly reduce the cost of paying to host the uh, data because you won't have irrelevant data on the review platform. Another way to mitigate uh, hosting fees is to bring down the project quickly once the production set is made uh, to avoid continuing hosting and storage costs after production. Uh, obviously, the data needs to be accessible to conduct follow-up searches that might be sought by opposing, opposing counsel. Uh, so a good practice is to notify opposing counsel in advance that uh, you know we're going to shut down this project in, at the end of the month and you let us know if you have any additional searches, and that'll mitigate uh, expenses and ensure that, that opposing counsel has a reasonable time to conduct follow-up searches. Will the court give you any relief if the ESI discovery expense is dispro- disproportionate to the value of the case? So, unfortunately, it's been our experience that uh, the courts are reluctant to put limits on the scope of uh, ESI discovery based on proportionality grounds. The rules allow the the court to do so if, if discovery is deemed disproportionate to the value of the case, but in our experience, courts aren't doing so, uh, especially when counsel has already negotiated search terms and date ranges and custodians. The courts are going to be reluctant to impose further limits on expenses if the ESI results turn out to be much larger than anticipated. So we suggest the best course uh, for seeking court intervention may be before undertaking the expense of the search when you're negotiating the scope of the search if opposing counsel is being unreasonable in requesting very broad uh, ESI production. But, you know, such early motion practice is going to need to be supported by cost estimates from the ESI vendor, so it's kind of a uh, catch-22. So your collection efforts may have to be commenced in order to provide evidence of the data size uh, and the company expense so that you can ask the court that reasonable limits should be imposed. If the case is low value, I think the courts will be more likely to intercede uh, to impose limits, but if it's a high value uh, case, uh, I think they're going to be reluctant to do so. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, thank you. That was John J. Clowardy III, partner with the law firm of Pierce, Davis, and Peritano, LLP in Boston, Massachusetts. And special thanks to today's producer, Frank Vowinkle. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, go to our webpage, www.ambest.com slash claims resource. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, and now this message. Best Insurance Professionals and Claims Resource is the top website for locating qualified professionals and need-to-know insurance information for the claims market. Brought to you by AM Best, the world leader in insurance industry information. Visit ambest.com slash claims resource.